Do we know what the future will look like? Some of us think so. <laughs> In today's episode of The Last Optimist, I am delighted to be joined by Larry Siegel. Larry is the director of research at the CFA Institute Research Foundation. Like me, he does basic research, writes books, and he also, like me, annoys people by giving speeches. But about the but he but he he does a lot of his work about the really important stuff, you know, money. The CFA Institute, I understand, is a global not-for-profit professional organization that provides investment professionals with finance education and of course promotes ethics standards the global investment industry. So, you know, Larry knows a lot of stuff. And the reason we're talking with Larry is in two parts. First, he's published a review of my book. And we'll have a link to that uh, at the podcast uh, page. And he wrote a pretty lengthy review and what I would call a gentle, kind review, which I appreciate. It appears we agree about a lot of stuff. We disagree about some nuances, but, you know, what else is new? So we'll talk about some of that. More importantly, Larry has published a book himself, a new book, back in the mists of time in the in the whole two years ago in 2020. The great evil lockdowns, I'm sure, distracted people from paying as much attention to his book as they should have. But I read it. I loved it. So we're also going to put up a link to his book on the podcast page. So Larry's book is titled Fewer, Richer, Greener, Prospects for Humanity in an Age of Abundance. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for joining. My pleasure. And I also got to say that as I'm progressing toward becoming an old man, I'm talking less about money, although I think money is very important. And I have <laughs> a lot of investment, accumulated investment knowledge and more about the kinds of issues that uh, you're writing about and that are in fewer, richer, greener, because uh, I don't actually have a job. So. <laughs> the the, uh, the CFA Institute Research Foundation uh, uses me part-time from home as their director of research. And uh, the rest of the time I do consulting, I give speeches, I write books. And then the most important part is uh, doing nothing. <laughs> well, you know, I would say the same thing. I, I often, my kids when, would ask me when they were younger, they're all grown up now. Could you, could you tell me what you do, you know, sentence so I could tell my friends and I said, well, you could say I don't have a job, really. I mean, the way people think of jobs, I, I write and I talk yeah. and I research. I read, write, and yeah. talk. <laughs> used, I used to build things and invent things, but let's talk about your book. My first reaction was, so I, this, is a really, this is a great book, really, and I commend it to people listening. You should really read this book. It's, it's, it's good at so many levels, covers a lot of territory. I, I'd say you know, some of my friends have said my book was ambitious because I covered so much territory. I mean, by territory, I mean the variety of subject matters, right. as did Larry. I mean, in fact, in a slightly different organizational structure, our sort of territorial roadmap overlapped a lot. And so what, I wanna, what I'm going to do is I wanna, I'm going to read six quotes, brief ones from your book, which are going to talk about each one. And the first five, we pretty much agree on, but they're important points to talk about. The six we may not agree as much about, which is fun to talk about. Uh, but first, what I was intrigued by reading your, you know, in the acknowledgments and forward that you got early on animated by this subject area, which is the, the broad exploration 
of the nature of all kinds of things, technology, demo, demographics, and uh, you know, resources, and how economies function, and war fighting. I mean, they all, all relate because humanity operates across all these domains. There are no silos. So you obviously is interested in them as me, but you wrote that a long time ago, a friend pointed you to the works of Julian Simon mm-hmm. and Peter Beckman. Right. So for me, this is, um, you know, how you look for tells, right? If you're playing poker and you're reading books, you look for tells whether you might agree with somebody. Yeah. So, so both of them were friends of mine. Oh, uh, I lived across the street I did. From, from Julian. Okay. And Peter Beckman and I were, he's all, they were both, but Julian would have not been much older than me if you're still alive. He died very young. Uh, Peter was older than me, a, like me, a physicist. And he and I were very involved in the nuclear debates together back uh, when I was young. And uh, in fact, he asked me to take over writing his newsletter while he was still alive. It wasn't something I could do at that time. But anyway, b- great man, brilliant in so many ways. Um, fascinating. So I was really thrilled to see that... Uh, you, you shared uh, your the same intellectual affection, I think, for for the two these two great. Oh, men. I certainly do. Uh, that doesn't mean I agree with everything they said. <laughs> uh, Peter, Beckman, Peter Beckman went off on a on a tangent at, later in his life that I he didn't really figure out. Well, you know, a lot of what Peter, I think, for me, what a lot of explained was he grew up in the under the in the boot of the Iron Curtain. And a lot of how he saw the world was both productively and sometimes unproductively influenced by that infection, how it affects your yeah. life growing up yeah. in that kind of environment. So, but they, they're both um, rationalists. I mean, in the sense, they all had their own political opinions and animations and passions. What I liked about your book is, is what is, animates me and how I like to do research. I, you know, I have passions. I, care about things and social issues we all do but the facts matter you know getting the data and looking at what the trends are telling you really uh it's awfully important and and i, I would say if there, if i were going to characterize the weave of your you know your, your history which is fun your affection for literature and poetry which is delightful thank you uh, yeah it's just it's other people's snuck, poetry, by the way. I don't, don't write my own. I'd rather quote Shakespeare. <laughs> well, not everybody quotes poetry in a book about technology and science and, and demography. And that's and, the problem. It, it is a problem. Yes. Yeah, I snuck a I snuck a poem into my book too, as you as you as probably I know. Poem. Yes. So for the same same reason, because poets have a lot of eloquence in compressing complex ideas into. So, but let's let me start with the first thing that you wrote early on and you and you, and you wrote this and cause this is sort of the art overarching theme of your book. And I, it's the overarching theme of mine. I was just less blatant about stating it quite this way. Although I did state similar things you wrote. I do not agree with those who say we're facing an ecological catastrophe, although there's some chance of it, but I can see that the planet is getting crowded. It was getting crowded when the population crossed 3 billion. A lot of the problems we've been facing come from trying to bring to rapidly growing numbers of people the benefits of increasing wealth, more advanced technology, and other aspects of modern life. So, yeah, I mean, that's the, I mean, I'm not, the world has problems and we can create problems, but you got to be fundamentally optimistic. Why I call this podcast the last optimist. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you see where the world has gone from 250 years ago to today, 
the, the trend is obvious. It's up, up, up. Now, there are people who don't think our modern life is all that great, but I would challenge them to call their mother in 1875, a year before Alexander Graham Bell made it technologically possible, or to cure themselves of a staphylococcus infection before 1920-something when penicillin was discovered. You couldn't, even if you were the richest man in the world. Now it costs about a dollar for either one. However, there's this sense that's been present ever since the beginning of recorded philosophy. That's right. Although things have been getting better in the past, this is the today is the inflection point, and they're going to start to get worse from this point forward. (laughs) And the what makes what enables the this meme to stick around from from Plato to, to to the present is that occasionally they're right. Yeah, of once course. in a while, Russians are marching across Central Europe, and they say, "See, I told you so." The occasionally they're right that things get worse. I would say two things. One is the unkind one. This is the version of the stop clock being right twice. Yeah. Uh, sure, if you predict uh, problems or a disaster of any kind we have you know human beings and nature do bad things episodically but as you know most of most of the problems that the world has faced and things that are self-inflicted uh you know nature can i mean as you know i wrote in my book nature's been trying to kill humans for all of human history and you know nature is pretty hostile to us from the bacteria that cause infections to to earthquakes and we develop technology to protect ourselves from it. And we also misuse the technology occasionally to kill other people or, or pollute right. things stupidly. But the March of History issue, you know, you nailed something that just ticks me off that it's a comp- two versions of presentism that we've re- reached the apotheosis of imp- improving the state of living. And, and that's it. We're done. Things are going to get worse from here. Oh. Okay, we've invented all the ways to make things better, or, you know, extend life, improve life, cut pollution. Bob Gordon says we've picked all the low-hanging fruit. Uh, yeah. He has a yeah. PhD and a chaired professorship, so he's probably right. No, he's not. Uh, and there are lots of people who are saying this. And you know, and the thing that the thing that Gordon has said. In fact, I'll, I'll in a large measure, I, I wrote my book because of. What Gordon said, he's a professor at the school where I'm a faculty fellow, so I don't know him well. I've met him once or twice. Of course, the, other, the economist who is my one of my favorites, you also quote, and I quote a number of times, is also at Northwestern, which is Joel Moikier. Right. And Moikier is more in the uh, Julian Simon class of being more optimistic, but his optimism is not this sort of uh, naive, gee, it's got to get better. It's, as you say, it's because... There's no evidence to suggest that we stopped inventing new and better things. But the, the, the idea or the end of innovation is essentially wrapped up in uh, Gordon and his other, which I call the new normalists, that we, we're at a, you know, the new normal is slow growth because there's not many, many things that are fundamental to invent anymore. Yeah, there are. How can that to, be true? You can't. Go to Bangladesh. They're growing at seven. If you start from a lower base, it's easier to grow quickly, but but there are plenty of things that they need that they don't have. So the growth may 
come more quickly in other parts of the world than in the United States and Western Europe. That, that's fine. I'll, yeah, it could be. We'll see. I mean, I'm, we'll see. I'm a little more optimistic about what we can, can and will do. In fact, I liked, I liked your, your, your second quote I want to read is, you know, you have a chapter, a subtitle called Aging Gracefully, which, which I like because I'm, you know, approaching a later age in life. Um, the two of us together as we yeah, march through yes. the, the great demographic. But you wrote, you know, what's the matter with the kids these days? <laughs> and you talked about, it's, it's, and it's a, it's a nice way to put it, and is that it's not so much about longer life, it's living healthier as you live for the length of time that you do live. And uh, that's harder. That's, it's, it's hard, but that's where technology is is making some strides that are truly remarkable. And you're, you're, you're uh, note, noting, you know, what COVID did, of course, is it made legal uh, telemedicine, which was illegal. You couldn't talk to your doctor and get a prescription until the lockdowns. Right. And, and as you wrote, right. Hugo Gerns back. It, it said other things. <laughs> yeah, it was that. Yeah. But this, this, these, that, and the whole penumbra of things that we can do technologically for diagnosis, treatment, improvement of therapeutics developments. We're just in the very early days of making great leaps there, which should make not people live longer to your point, which is a really important point is the, the years where people are living on the last 15 years of life, we'll call it roughly. Yeah. You want to live healthfully, healthily in those years. You don't want to be a burden of society setting aside. It's no fun for the person living or, or the person who's uh, carrying the burden. That, that's right. I, I just wanted to mention before I dropped the thought that the biggest benefit of COVID had horrible costs, absolutely horrible. But the biggest benefit is that it made messenger RNA based vaccines into a commodity. The next virus we're going to cure in, or be able to prevent in six weeks. And the one after that, probably in six hours. Yeah. You know, uh, you're, 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 there are there are silver linings to uh, the grotesque way in which government responded to the to the, this pandemic. <clears throat> we don't have to go down that. Oh, we learned what not to do. Yeah, we don't have to go down that rat hole. Except, I agree with you that there are, there are several uh, features, and they're principally technological features, right? Uh, that them is not the behavioral features, but the technologies that were accelerated or or brought to light. And, and, you know, by coincidence, you probably know this, the year before, in, in year 2019, NIH ran a, a, a test of a simulated virus to see how fast one could use the algorithms and supercomputers to engineer a synthetic virus, an mRNA virus, based on the new mRNA capabilities, which you, you, you do in a computer. Yeah. You basically plug it into a supercomputer now instead of, and of course, you still have to do clinical trials, but you, you can do a lot of in silico, what I instead of in-person that, trials first, right. yeah, and I, that's a huge deal. But it also not just the um, the vaccine, the therapeutic uh, potential uh, development acceleration is also extant in the same uh, chemistry in a computer as opposed to in a lab. We now genetically engineer plants so that we can eat them, animals so that they're you know easier to raise or, or more nutritious when we eat them and so forth in a computer instead of in a lab. And, and CRISPR-Cas9 is essentially an interface between 
the world of computers and the world of physical genes of DNA. I, I didn't think that that would be possible, nor did I think about it at all until this century. And well, it's just fact, an incredible even, even, piece of technology. It, it, it is. And I think people, and, and I, I, I spent a mo- very small amount of time on synthetic biology in, in, in my book, mm-hmm. in part because I think some of the real benefits from it are, will emerge mostly after the 2020s and yeah. because, because of the, it, it's, it's biology with humans. It takes more time. Yeah. But they're coming. But we the, don't even know what the problems we're trying to solve are. Well, well the, 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 the proverbial unknown unknowns. Well, yeah, that's the title of my other book. I know. <laughs> but it's uh, <laughs> it, actually, they're making some progress against cancers with the mRNA technology. Uh, some people, I think they're dreamers have said that they may actually be able to cure cancer with this technology in time. I don't know if that's the 2030s or the 3030s, but, uh, but that seems to be the right lever to push. Well, I think, I think the, the uh, you know, the, whether the timeline is hard to predict. This is where I was beginning with it. We, we know what the future will look like because some of it's already happened. And this, your, your point is the mRNA technique and the CRISPR techniques combined tell you a lot about the direction things are going, which is very encouraging, but you can't predict exactly the timing things emerge or the problem we will solve, but you know, the tools are really different. It'd be the equivalent. And I like analogies because they're be the equivalent of the dawn of aviation. And you know, a lot is going to be done with airplanes once you know, you can make an airplane, but it's pretty hard to get the exact architecture of the future of aviation in uh, 1910. Yeah, and we knew we were trying to make airplanes in 1880. We yep. couldn't predict the future. We couldn't predict the architecture of aviation until the 30s. And then, yep. then some of it was wrong. It was bigger and bigger pro- propeller planes yep. until you could get one that crossed the Atlantic with, by only stopping in Newfoundland and the Azores. Well, that wasn't right. It turned out the jet plane was on the shelf waiting to take take up that space, but it but nobody really knew it in the 30s. And of course, back to our, our uh, mutual nemesis in a sense, uh, Professor Gordon, not the beat up. No, on. Not he, he was a brilliant guy, really. Yeah. He's a good writer yeah, yeah. And, and, and a terrific lecturer. He, um, he would say correctly, once you've invented a jet engine, once it's invented once, you don't get it again. Right. right. <clears throat> okay. Fair enough. Um, you know, it's like when the arch was invented by we probably ancient Greeks to build stone openings that weren't rectangular. Right. Once you know how to do it, it's done forever. But I, you come back to this end of innovation theme that you, you, you unbundle in your book, which is, you know, in, in effect, the essence of getting people to realize there's a lot to be optimistic about, but here, I want to go to a different, topic is you like me like Feynman and you wrote a lot about education. Yeah, everybody likes Feynman. He, he, he had one thing that most physicists don't a sense of humor. <laughs> Excuse me. Wait a minute. <laughs> he was a physicist of much greater accomplishment and note than, than, than I, I don't am. know I you that. well yet. <laughs> but he was hilarious. He was hilarious. He was he was a, a 
not only just a funny guy, but uh, also a polymath. In the, right, yeah, uh, absolutely. He, he, he could have picked any field he, to, he to be expert. He could have picked in. the archaeology of Tuva, which is in Siberia. In fact, he did. But and, and you know, I, I like how you, you you pointed out that as a non-physicist, you listen to his lectures. You can still listen to him. You can read his books. Yeah. But listening to the lectures is the right way to do it. That's right. Uh, very. But his the the point you were making around Feynman was about education. And one of the I spent a whole several chapters, as you know, in my book, like you spent a lot of time on education. And it's funny how f- few people who think about technology in the future. I guess are open-minded about the two things. One is how technology has always impacted education, but the other feature is how important the human contact, the human feature of education remains. The technology can be an amplifier for it, not a replacement of it. Right. Aristotle walked around a garden with his students following him. They were called peripatetics because that's the Greek word for walking around. Yeah, and <laughs> set a model that still works. That it actually, they make them sit down, which is negative progress. It getting a bunch of kids to sit down and listen to a lecture for hour after hour every day is probably destructive to education. But, but we have to do something about the quality of education that people are getting in this country. It's embarrassing. Oh, it's. Let's let's um, skip the political uh, destruction that education has suffered on and how we've handled it. Yeah. it I, I would say here's another silver lining in a way, I think, during the lockdowns is, you know, two things happened. A lot, a lot of parents discovered what their t- kids were being taught and didn't like right. it. The, the extent that they were listening to teachers on Zoom and heard what they were really saying and teaching. That's a bit of a political revolt that's still unfolding. It still so, is. And yeah. And it's going to continue to spur people to start different kinds of alternative schools. Exactly. The the word alternative in schooling has, has kind of gotten a bad odor. It's, it's schooling for people who aren't making it. Well, yeah, exactly. It was opposed to an alternative to the, to a system that doesn't serve you well. Right. Which is that there's a lot of stuff going on in the last two years that shows progress in that direction. Well, in fact, the other thing that happened, which was intriguing, is, of course, a lot of a lot of parents and, of course, the fortunate ones, it's a minority, but it's a significant minority, maybe even a plurality, were doing de facto homeschooling. Yeah. So the share of parents that chose to homeschool pre-lockdown was, I think the number was 4% of all students, students yeah, or I, roughly a like small that. number. Yeah, I, that even that sounds high. It uh, it's a generous, you know, they include some of the, but let's just say it's a few percent. It includes points. some religious groups that we're not sure what they were teaching. Right. But but I would dare say we'll find if the data comes in that whatever the number was, it'll be twice as high. I think it's three times. That'd be great. I mean, I've heard it anecdotally. So in which case, this is the budding alternative and it's made easier of course, by the cloud, which I like so much because you can make it easy for parents or easy for creation of groups in person with online tutoring and making the compliance with the standards to certify what it means to be 
meet the, the standards of get a high school degree, let's say, yeah. easier for everybody. You know, it's not going to be opaque. It just becomes a an app and a, and a interface on the on the iPad or the computer. The the downside of that is when it's time for recess and you go outside and play, there's nobody yeah. there. Well, no, I I guess I'm I'm bullish on what I would call the recreation recreation of local uh, pseudo, um, I'll call a meta schoolhouse where you find people in your geographic proximity who want to uh, homeschool with you, pull your resources, and then you you have your kids play with other kids. So you need to socialize. Yeah, that, that's what they're doing. All the homeschoolers that I've talked to yeah. are doing exactly that. But they're also purchasing curriculum materials from either nonprofit organizations or for profits that give you, because we're not really qualified to teach every subject. Sure. And uh, we're probably on the right tail of the people who are qualified. And still, you wouldn't really want me to teach medieval art history. Uh, you definitely don't want me to teach any kind of engineering or physics developed since 1960 because everything I know is wrong. <laughs> well, not quite everything. There's a, there's well, a mecha your mechanics is, hasn't changed, but all the nuclear stuff is just, I, it sounds yeah, to me like they're, they're just making it up, but you, you would know better. Well, they, well I, first of all, a lot of it is just made up in my opinion. Um, the, you know, I have a very dear friend who's an astrophysicist an honest to God yeah. practicing astrophysicist. And, uh, he, uh, he and I have a lunch breakfast and lunches. We talk about the elliptical theories that are being spun at the edges of physics. Yeah. And, and he's, he'll say, you know, it's mathematics works, but they're just making this stuff up. He's not, he's, he's a skeptic, but back to, back to education, <laughs> but you're right. Yeah. You, you know, um, you can, but the, the, the big jump in tutoring, the one thing that Zoom is really good for, one thing Zoom is lousy about, what we're doing now, Zooming facilitates a conversation. It doesn't make a big meeting better. It makes it, makes it lousy. But if you're for amplifying or teaching a student or helping them with a problem they have, a good tutor through an interface with a computer screen can be 90% as good as showing up in person for that specific purpose. Yeah, my son has and made that, a career out of it. He is yeah. a guitar teacher and also has is in two bands and he's also a composer. Well, the teaching part, when the lockdowns came, he his income went through the roof because he didn't have to drive to all the students' houses or right. come in, say hi to the mother and so forth. Right. He just did one after another after another. And uh, he misses uh, he misses some of the interaction. He, he is, in fact giving in-person lessons again, but, but it was, uh, he, he sure was on the phone to me a lot at asking which stocks to buy uh, no. instead of asking me for money. <laughs> I like that part. That's much better. Uh, he this he is... hasn't asked me for money in 20 years, but, but it's great to see your kid <laughs> in the arts making enough money that they have a little investment hobby on the side. Well, you know, to, to, I think your uh, what your son is doing is a is a great example of one of the technologies I find particularly fascinating. So, first, the fusion the, the, for the ability to teach and amplify. First of all, he amplifies his income, but he's also amplifying an important product, which is his efficacy in teaching lots of people 
by virtue of that, obviously, right? That, but there are parts I'm sure he would say where not every time, but some of the times it's better if I'm there to hold their hand, show them, touch. The, 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 the tactile part is important, not just in music, but in a lot of the skills, a lot of the skills and skilled trades. Yes. Uh, and, well, guitar playing is a physical thing. Uh, well, yeah. yeah it's, last like, it's like Yogi Berra said, is said to have said about baseball, it's 90% mental and the other half is physical. <laughs> I love Yogi Berra stuff. I did put one Yogi Berra quote in my book, but you don't want to do too many because he's had so many that he's ostensibly said, he probably said 90% of them. Or maybe he said 110. Well, his of them, his best quote is, I never said half of the stuff I said. <laughs> the guy was so good. Yeah. <laughs> reading, reading everything about, you know, all the, all the obvious ones. You come to a fork in the road, you take yeah. it, you know, all that yeah. stuff. I mean, it's, he, was, he was great. The interesting thing, though, it'd be, it'd be fun to talk to your, your son about this, but I looked a lot at, at Northwestern, in fact, some of the engineers there are developing haptic interfaces. So for, for those who, who are listening and don't know what a haptic interface is, it's so I can feel, I get touch yeah. feedback from something that's remote. So if I'm, if I'm, you know, the thing I can't do on a computer is I can't feel anything. I can't tell texture. I can't tell, uh, I can't feel pressure. And of course the, the thing one would like to have is feedback that when I'm grabbing the virtual ball or touching the virtual guitar on the screen, I can feel I can feel it as if I was touching the real thing. Yeah. This, this is no longer science fiction. Right, it's it's now emerging as a uh, it's an emergent technology. There's a little haptic engine in your phone, by the way. Well, that's the vibrator that you know that, that exactly yes. what people feel, and the exotic version of that shrunk down and made better would let you feel things. And let's say a, a very thin glove, a latex thick yeah. glove. But your your people like your son <clears throat> could literally reach out through computer interfaces and help students feel what he's feeling. Yeah. What, what, that, what a, what a, great. You know, what a big deal. What a, what a and transformation they could be in China. They could, they could be in Italy. Sure. The, uh, the idea though, that uh, we can't, we can't fix education technically is what you cover as a bankrupt idea. What obviously we both agree is that it has to be motivated from the ground up, the political system has sort of been captured by a certain way to think about education, which is obviously not helping this country or anybody else. Well, I, I kind of put in a section about my prep school where I said, well, you can yeah. fix it technically. You yeah. just have to hire a certain kind of teacher, have a certain kind of structure, and Acton Academy is doing it. And I let Dave Stanwick, my research assistant for the book, write his own little mini chapter on that. Some of the stuff is technical. Yeah, but it's not mostly technical. It, it, it's willpower and the ability to say to people, "We're not going to do things the way we did them last week because it didn't work." It's time I, to make a change, and, and people will get hurt. There, you know, you have an army of teachers who are out of a job, marching yeah. in Washington. That that's that's not going to help the cause. No, and as you say, some of it's technical. Some of it is. Well, maybe they use yoga barrel line. Ninety percent of it's technical, but the other half is willpower. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
Then let, let, let me turn to your, your section on robots and automation and AI, which you again echo. So the theme that I tried to weave in my book's chapters on robots that the there's robots as we imagine them in science fiction and the way they're being realized today, anthropomorphic walking, untethered machines, right. you know, Dynamics cool type robot comes to a, a log and, and and jumps over it. I mean, this is you know we're we're seeing engineers render what used to be science fiction, and and people's reaction is appropriate is is to be wow, it's amazing, it is amazing. Mm-hmm. But then the reaction is, oh, they're gonna they're gonna take over all our jobs. There's not going to be any jobs for people anymore. They're it's the robots are taken over, which is no different than what was said, as you know, in 1920, when uh, our friend the Czech wrote and created the word robots. Carl Kapat. Carl Kapat. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but it it it, it looks like Carl Kapat. Yeah, no. I I don't speak, the, but you you're pointing out that the automation is, has this feature, always has this feature. Of reducing labor inputs. That's the whole That's point why of automation. You do it. Yeah. As Steve Sexauer, whom you and I both know well, said, it's it's a work you don't have to do. Most of what we do involves trying to avoid doing doing hard work when we'd rather be doing easy work. And robots are simply another extension of our drive to do that. Like any machine, any technique, uh, anything that is helps us not live the way our ancestors did 50,000 years ago, puts eliminates some kind of work, which means it could put somebody out of a job. Yet unemployment's been 4% at the peak of economic expansions every time since the 1700s. Yeah, you know, I used uh, <clears throat> the same factoid as you did, attracted to the same data series, po- pointing out, as you know, through technology automation, we reduce labor hours to make a car, reduce labor hours to make a ton of steel, you reduce labor hours to grow grains with tractors, automation. Right. Um, and over all of the 200 years of history of serially reducing labor, eliminating jobs over all that time, if it were true that automation eliminated work, how in the heck would unemployment rate stay at essentially at a 4%, which is statistically Zero. It's zero. But it, the, what has changed is the number, the proportion of people working and how, how hard they work. Yep. I put it in an example of my wife's grandmother had to feed 357 people, not 357 people, 17 people three times a day, seven days a week, which is 357 meals a week. Yep. Uh, and she was not counted as employed. Right. And she was working her ass off so as her yep. husband. Uh, people don't work that hard. Well, that's that's exactly what productivity does. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the the magic of it. And, and to your point, and I think this is the to me, the, the, the point that's a challenge is the one that remains a challenge is that automation has always displaced specific jobs. So we, we, we all know. And you list many of them, the kinds of jobs that just don't exist anymore, from typist to very few bank tellers, all, all the obvious lists. They're, they don't have puddlers anymore in the steel industry, and you don't have people collecting feces and jars 
in Dickensian England because people don't have you know toilets. We lots of jobs disappear. So people had those jobs, lost the jobs. We created a system in America called unemployment insurance and to, to, to capture that problem because there's always this problem. Yeah. And it's sort of got bloated and out of control because it's hard to do the retraining part. Everybody has to find a new job. But I'm convinced that, I'm back to my, my thesis here, a cloud does two things that wasn't, haven't been possible before. It makes it easier to find another job than any other time in history because you don't have to have newspapers from an adjoining town. And it makes it easier to get new qualifications and get trained. Yeah. So this is far better than unemployment. There are transition costs. And of if, course. if airplanes sudden, suddenly decided to fly themselves, airplane pilots would not really, because their average age is something like 55, would not suddenly be able to retrain themselves to do something else. They would just be out of a job. And then the next generation would be trained differently. And then in 20 or 30 years, the problem would go away. And of course, that's precisely why a wealthy society, again, which comes from productivity, has this feature that we have things like unemployment insurance. We have means to have a, a more gentle landing, let's call mm-hmm. it, for most people. Right. Not everybody. Um, no, it's fair. But I would also say that's a good example where the velocity with which the displacement happens is a lot slower than a lot of people realize. It looks like it's overnight. Bringing, bringing full autonomy to the aircraft, which is technically possible right now. You can, in, in principle, do it, but it would, in fact, be far less safe than having pilots because so far, computers, you know, for certain parts of the flight operation, the, the auto, autopilot's just fine. It's when you get a nasty surprise. You and, want somebody up there. But yeah, the, the wet wear. By the, the way. Well, driving is going to, I think, driving as you know, I put in my book, it's harder, far harder than flying for a time. Much harder than flying an airplane, yes. Exactly. And and we'll tell you, given how low the death rates are in the world's uh, U.S. roads, you have to marvel at the skill of the wetware driving cars because we have people driving poorly, drunk, too fast. If you think of the spectrum of misbehaviors, in driving, poorly maintained yet, cars, poorly maintained everything. roads. Yeah, uh, people who are forget that they're driving a car because they're listening to music or arguing with somebody, or doing doing their eyelashes if it's uh, some people, or or re- reading something uh, uh, on their Tesla screen that's not a map. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> or even if you are reading a map, I mean, it's happened to me. I'm reading the map. I I forget that I'm supposed to be looking at the road. Well, that's, I mean, it's, this is where uh, I think the, the velocity issue of technology change is what fascinates me is, you know, I covered it. You have some of this in your book as well, that the hindsight feeling that things are happening fast is a sort of a misdirection in terms of how fast most things happen. Software upgrades happen quickly, new versions of your smartphone. But these underlying things, whether it's autonomous cars or airplanes or changing how we distribute food or changing how we do education, you know, a 10-year cycle is very fast from a history perspective. Mm-hmm. But not many things happen in 10 years. If we think back 10 years, there's, you know, iPhones weren't around much 
10 years ago, this is only a 15 year old, 15 year revolution. Uh, right. Pretty, you know, it, it took a full decade to really restructure things with, but radios took the same length of time to change yeah. how people communicated. That's right. And, and, but our lives were not that different 10 years ago. In, instead of Uber, you called a cab. And instead of having, instead of checking your email on a smartphone, you checked it on some sort of a computer. Uh, where you get a lot of change is over longer periods of time when people like us, once we get older, start to feel like the world isn't ours anymore. <laughs> Wait a minute. I didn't get that memo. Well, it, it happens, though. You, you, you see people doing things and you just don't understand why. Try, first of all, listen to rap music. Tell me what you think it is. I know. And watch TikTok. <laughs> These are both penances for having committed a misdeed to have to do that as a... I, I no, but you're you're right. These are, but these are uh, cultural shifts, and they're they're made possible by technology, right. of course. But they're but they're not just about technology. It's about cultural shifts of what norms are for things like entertainment. Well, we've always, music. always had that. My father thought I was crazy for listening to rock and roll. His father exactly. thought he was crazy for listening to jazz, and so on. Back to the beginning of time. Exactly. That's. So you and I share that view, but you back to where uh, something we talked about earlier is that there's an awful lot of people who suffer from presentism, thinking that this time the transformations are somehow different. This time it's different. Well, it is different in the sense of the specifics, but it's not different either qualitatively or or substantively in terms of how it affects how we operate and think. That's right. The fact of change isn't different. It's it's the specifics, and it, it's. Well, like, you know, you also quote uh, one of my favorite economists, David Otor at MIT. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's, you know, in fact, he, he makes, he makes this, this point where you, 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 for, I think for the same reasons, I didn't use this quote. I see you did. He's such a good writer. such a smart guy. Good. Uh, he, he wrote, because everybody knows that this time is different. He writes, is this time different? Of course, this time is different. Every time is different. But then he goes on to ex explain uh, the, these are extraordinarily important, though, uh, perspectives, as you know, because they influence the, how people do policies and how they think about how they're going to vote and things that impact our lives in very real ways. You know, governments can create awfully destructive forces, not constructive forces yeah. in terms of protecting us from predation. Right. Uh, and I'm, I'm a little, I'm still, I'm still the last optimist. I'm still an optimist like you, but I'm a little worried about some of the directions we've been drifting in, but I, I think there's, I think there's a, I think the destructive part of how the government's handled the COVID crisis. Yeah, no, I have. There's always something where we're not making progress. We're going the wrong way. And I think that's sort of x-rayed a lot of uh, what I would consider feckless policy behaviors across the board, not one specific thing and made people maybe pay up, pay attention more say, oh, I don't like how things are going. And, it, you know, it wasn't, we won't get it perfect the next round, but maybe we'll change some yeah. things. I, I want to say the one thing where we, I don't think we actually disagree, but where we mildly disagree, and you wrote this in your review of my book, but the dematerialization versus rematerialization. And, and of course, you and I both quoted McAfee, 
who, who wrote a great, a really good book yeah. about dematerialization. And you quote Jesse Osabel. I, I know Jesse, a good, utterly brilliant scientist at Rockefeller University, really, really smart guy. And he's, he's our architect, a lot of his information as well, particularly about material use over the centuries, mm -hmm. what we use and how much we use. What I was taking issue with, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, you, I wrote that we're not the dematerializing. I, I said, with all due respect, I take exception. You know, replacing vinyl records with uh, music that's streamed looks like we've dematerialized it. I've actually done some calculations on the physical material quantities required to do that. And it is true, we use a little less material per unit of music you listen to. But in fact, we use a lot less material. It's about a it's about a tenfold reduction per music minute sent to you on a smartphone that is counting the materials that you're responsible for pro rata upstream. And you're counting the, the cloud days. hardware too. Yeah, I got it. You got to count the cloud hardware. If you count cloud hardware, not your phone, your phone is irrelevant. Right. Yeah, the material it's the building full of right. storage somewhere. It's the data centers, the networks, all that stuff has physical weight. Yeah. And the physical weight, all that stuff, your pro rata share of that. And then, then, and then prorate it later for the how much you do music on it. You still have a material reduction. It's probably 10x compared to buying a vinyl record. Mm -hmm. But then everybody is consuming 20 times, I, I'm understating, the quantity of music that they're, they're consuming or absorbing or pulling off the ecosystem that we call music. So the net effect might might not be actually any material reduction in absolute terms. It's just a change of, of the materials used, but the physical quantity materials maybe go, went down a little bit and actually have gone up a little bit. It's hard to know in these ecosystems because when you create such efficiencies for consuming something people like, like music or TV or music, or, and they, they consume a lot of it when it gets cheap and easy. Well, there's satiation that, that now, Mark. That's why we disagree. I can't listen to more than 24 hours of music a day, no matter how cheap it is. I can't read more than a certain number of books, no matter how easy it True. is to deliver them to my computer screen. And True. there's satiation of how many calories can I eat, right? So, Absolutely. Right? So eventually the Jevons problem goes away. The Jevons, William Stanley Jevons, for the listeners, was an English economist who noticed, I believe, in the 1860s as that coal was getting so cheap that people were using more and more of it to the point where they were spending more than when it was expensive. Well, yep. there's only so hot you want your house to be. Uh, sure. So absolutely right. So that for lighting, housing, food, food in particular, the difference between a starvation diet and a, and a, and a gluttonous diet is two actual calories per yeah, day. Right, yeah. That's it. You can only double the calorie intake of a human being because they can't literally eat anymore. Right. So, and the same is true of the, and in fact, one of the Disney executives told me some years ago in a meeting we were at that their competition is, is for the same, the same one hour you want to spend doing something that amounts to entertainment in a day. That's, that's it. You, you don't spend 60 hours doing entertainment per day because there aren't 60 hours in a day. And, and, there, and you don't spend more than that. You might spend an hour and a half if you have more free time like you and I maybe some days. Yeah. But you don't spend, you don't spend 10 hours. Right. But here's where, here's where I, I would disagree on the nuance. Two things that, of course, Jevons would know. If you're, I've read, I read his original paper. He was a really smart economist. Yeah. He was not confused. He called it a paradox because he thought other people thought it was paradoxical. He knew it wasn't he a paradox. He just knew it was a different slope of the demand curve. Exactly. But 
two things go on. Let's stick with the music part. Yeah. You're right. You don't want to listen more than an hour of music a day, but you actually, and this is, we know this in the data, consume in terms of bringing it into an ecosystem you can access 10 times more than the hour you're going to use a day. So what happens is, and this has physical consequence, it has pounds consequences. What happens is that your, your instantaneous access to what you want to listen to in that one hour, you created a far bigger menu of choices instead of bringing home two LPs. You, you downloaded the electronic equivalent of 100 LPs. And that act means that you still don't spend any more than that one hour, but the ecosystem has responded and expanding in, in places outside of that one hour. And that, that shows up, in fact, in the data as not, not a, as big a decline as people would expect, which is we already see that's the case. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, an increase because there's other utility functions that are satisfied that are a little different. And one that I've just described is what I call the convenience function. I like the fact that I don't have to go to the record store to select among the rows and rows of LPs. I just download them all to my phone. I get them whenever I want. That consumption requires more servers, more, more memory well, I, devices. I, I'm more. skeptical. Of this. The sound files are sitting somewhere uh, in the cloud. I'm not, I'm not done. I don't download them all thinking I'm going to use... 20 out of the 20 million, I download them on, on an as-needed basis, and you can only listen to 20 songs in an hour, and the songs are already there. They're, you're not printing another record. You are just sending more electrons through the atmosphere, which takes some energy, and it, it takes some takes equipment to do it, it but it, it, it's not... Uh, you're not wasting resources by keeping all 20 million songs that Apple has on Apple Music in your phone as well, you don't let's be clear it's not in your phone so when I say at your access your your uh, pro rata access point just to be clear on the hardware yeah. side is is not at one file with 20 million songs no. so the, the, in order to make it possible technologically for you to access what you want when you want you, the infrastructure invisible upstream yeah. is replicated this thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of times. And we create what's called edge networks and computing. Mm -hmm. And the way we serve movies and streaming stuff to you is not by creating one digital file that we use electrons to access. We, one creates uh, tons of of hardware pushed to the edges of the computer of computer and cloud networks, which store duplicates, millions of duplicates. So how do you think, it happens that when you pause your copy of Game of Thrones, that everybody else isn't paused. Well, it takes a piece of hardware and, and a memory system and a communication system to be in touch with you while a million other people have done the same thing at a different time. No, that's absolutely right. I, and I that uses the, the reason I, I started digging into this is partly because of what, what, what he wrote. I said, it's, a more, it's much more complicated than that. And the physical quantities of stuff, the physical hardware of the global cloud, and I put it, I'll put it in dollar terms, the spending on the physical hardware of the global cloud, not electrons flowing, not the energy part, is now greater than the spending on the physical hardware of the global electric utilities industry to build power plants and transmission lines. And the utility stuff is growing at a couple of few percent a year. The cloud stuff is growing at double digits every yeah. year. And it's hardware. And 
what we're not doing is in multiplying how many hours you're listening to this stuff, what we've done, and this is not to serve more people, it's to serve more optionality of exactly the kind I described, which all of it ends up weighing stuff. Well, let me no, tell you I'm, the bottom I'm line. agreeing with you. I, I haven't yeah. counted that. I, I didn't know much about it, but it's still the intuition behind it is that will improve, not get worse. Well, and but printing I mean, of, of the 8 billion people in the world, probably 4 billion would buy a videotape of all the episodes of Game of Thrones if it were free. And if they had a place to put them, that yeah. would be a lot of hard work. Yeah. Well, uh, that kind of thing is going on. But let, let me let me. Beat I'm, this I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that you no longer even think about having your own copy. You right. But you do have your own copy. But the fact that you in excess it the way you do requires that the infrastructure build things that provide that service you've taken for granted. But the here here's the where the you can reduce. I think one can reduce this to to the basic question. And I think what and I, this is a bone I pick with Jesse, not Jesse Ozabel, yeah, not you. Sure. So he looks at the curves for feldspar and for you know, all kinds of materials that we've used at different levels over history. <clears throat> but you can do a different data series, which is an easier one. Is there's four classes of materials that we, we consume in the world and we measure can measure them all in tons. Food stuff can be all measured in tons, mm-hmm. right? Uh, fuels are measured in tons. Mm-hmm. Metals are measured in tons. Mm-hmm. And of course, all the other construction materials, which are not metals, are measured in tons. Those four things are tracked and everything we make for humanity falls in one of those buckets, things that we make out of biomass that are not consumed, et cetera. If you look at that data series for the world, and this is sort of where I started, is that the, the, the tons of stuff are not only expanding and have for, for all of history, they're now growing at a faster rate than they were, than population is growing, and the faster rate than, than they were growing in the last uh, half century, and at a faster rate than can be explained by just economic growth. So the the economic, growing faster than the economy, not per capita, but faster than the world economy itself. Yeah, they grow faster than the world economy. Okay. Growth consumption of all stuff, and that's those gigatons of stuff. Now, what's happening is, no, I'm sorry, I, I, mis, I misstated. The economy is growing slightly faster than the stuff, and we're getting this less stuff per dollar of GDP. Yeah, that's what I think. That long run that, trend. That, that, that's the argument I made. And, and that's the argument I also make that our, the dematerialization of growth has full stop happened. There's no question it's been going on for 200 years, but it accelerated in the last half century as we got really good at uh, manufacturing and moving stuff. We got, our efficiencies have got up. Yeah. And that it's a feedback loop economy and then grows faster, but the absolute consumption of stuff, nonetheless, keeps going up. There's no peaking. Now there's peaking of specific things, you know, things that would become, we, we switch off and the, the absence of any peaking is, is fascinating because the rate of improvement, if you measure just in the terms of tons of stuff per dollar is so astonishing that everybody looks at it all well, pretty soon. We won't, you know, we will have no growth in stuff that we need. Right. It seems that that, and you put it as a Kuznets curve, that curve is so far off in the future, given the nature of not just the 5 billion people don't have any stuff, Mm -hmm. they don't have toilets, they don't have houses, whatever, or cars or smartphones, but also the new stuff we invent. I think, you know, if you look around you today, and we all know this thought experiment, you look around what your 
parents would have had in a given house at our comparable age and their parents, the variety of things that we have personally and have access to is unprecedented and keeps expanding. Yeah. That, that's right. And, and that's the whole, that's the point. The question is whether we are doing it if, with fewer underlying resources, the most important one being human effort, or whether we, as we continue to get richer and as the population continues to grow somewhat, we're going to use so much stuff that we, we, we start hitting the really steep part of the supply curve and the stuff becomes scarce and horribly expensive. Well, you put, you put your finger on two, and we'll, we, we can wrap up on these two really important points. The reduction on human effort is, to me, the overriding feature of the march of technology. And when policies and policymakers reverse that direction, you're bragging about there's more, more jobs doing X than Y. I don't want more jobs doing X. I want fewer jobs doing X. Yeah. I want this antithetical. to do itself. Yeah, exactly. Coal I mean, to pr- dig itself out of the ground, which they're doing in Australia with the help of some robots. I want water to deliver itself to my faucet instead of having women carry it all day when they could be doing something 10 times more productive and much easier and more fun. That, that's what I mean by progress. And, and uh, understanding how policies that seem beneficial are put in place today that reverse that progress is sort of been one of the missions I've had in my energy discussions. And you touch yeah. on this, that the, the monomaniacal push for wind and solar and electric batteries increases the material footprints by amounts that are astonishing, just astonishing and you profoundly never do that except for religious reasons. <laughs> Nor would you, as I believe they did in India, which strikes me as a moderately advanced society, build a 600-foot statue of some, some guy. Yeah. Twice I, the height of the Statue of Liberty. But it's one, th- it's one thing to build a big, one big statue for religious reasons. It's one thing to build a few hundred cathedrals, as you wrote. In no, the, they're so beautiful, though. I think they... Oh. they, they uh, didn't make a mistake. They, they did not make a mistake. And there's good reasons to build something like that, I think, for all kinds of reasons. You know, beauty, beauty, set aside religion, beauty has a role in the world. We, we appreciate beauty is because of its uh, profound underlying or moral and philosophical part of what it is to be human. Right. But to deliver a pound of food to a house, a gallon of water to deliver a service that you need for survival and to radically increase its material footprint somewhere on the planet is deeply destructive and inflationary. And it's what we're doing, unfortunately, with these green policies. That's a, that's a tough battle. And and it's to your point, it's, it's a religious battle because there seems to be a religious fervor in the belief that a wind turbine is somehow morally different machine, inherently better machine than a gas turbine that burns natural gas. Well, Don Quixote used to start fights with them. them. (laughs) 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 Tilting at windmills, baby. I love one of my favorite, uh, 
one of my favorite plays of all time, musicals, Man of La Mancha, that Raul Julia was his last role uh, on Broadway. He did, nobody knew he was dying, and he did a magnificent job yeah. in that. It was what what a what a great book, what a great story, and what a great allegory for for us to end on because. Yeah. You and I are both tilting at windmills often, it feels like, and shadow boxing with, with sort of quasi-religious beliefs and things that are, just aren't true. But I'm glad you wrote the book because I think, I, I think people, um, will, I think uh, first it's persuasive and it's persuasive in the right way. It's not, you're not a, you're not a pedant. You're not beating no, up on I'm people. I'm mostly trying to be an entertainer and a show off. This is, by the way, a great book for students. So um, because it's bite-sized in ways I think a lot of a lot of students will like too, which I'm I'm hoping that some, some traction, some professors will assign it. Well, well I, I'd like to uh, think they will, but John Merrifield, who's a professor at the University of Texas San Antonio, has proposed writing a teacher-student version with uh, nice. that's shorter, uh, a, few, a few less big words, and. <laughs> It, I disagree with them on that. Apparently. I think you keep the big words let in them, and you, and you put an asterisk. They can Google it. Dr. Google can right. help them. Yes. I agree with you. But also questions and answers and a, you know, a, a teacher's manual that comes with it that, that, that has the answers <laughs> so that when you can give a test, you don't have to show the student the answer. He hasn't made any progress, but we were going to do it together, and I haven't made any progress either. Uh, but I think it's a good idea. I think it's a terrific idea because the structure of the book lends itself to that. And I'm sure that was no accident. And the the but content or the kind of also thing, could use an update, by the way. Well, yeah, but you can update. I mean, I'll put in a couple of chapters on COVID. Yeah. And then I'll just update the data because. You know, yeah. The yeah but, that, but it doesn't change the, the thesis and the, the thrust of the arguments, though. Right. Time has not rendered incorrect or moot any of your your point. So I would definitely encourage you to do that. I think it would be a, a service and, uh, and I will, I will uh, continue to be a shameless promoter of your book, including with this podcast. So thank, thank you for being generous with your time. Uh, no problem. And I will uh, sign that's off. With I did you. all day. That's what <laughs> I got to keep you busy. Like, I, this has uh, been a been an interesting one for me, as as uh, our listeners probably know. We're we're swimming in the same lane, as they say, but not exactly the same strokes, and that's why it makes it interesting. Yeah. I, I, it's great. So thank you, and and I thank my thank um, my audience that's listening, and the extent to which I admonish everyone listening to the to rate and uh, give us you know the five star ratings, as they say for this my podcasts so you can listen and share it with your friends on whatever platform you listen to it and with that this is mark mills signing off for the last optimist mm-hmm.